Welcome to Birmingham Cathedral. My name is Catherine Ogle and I'm the Dean of the Cathedral. You're joining us as we celebrate the 300th anniversary of this beautiful, sacred place, built as a parish church for the growing town of Birmingham. I'm going to hand you now to Jane McArdle, who will take you on a tour of the cathedral. This is the story of a church that became a cathedral in the town that became a city. We begin at the entrance to the cathedral in the heart of modern bustling Birmingham. 300 years ago it would have been so different. We would have been stood in open countryside overlooking the rapidly growing town. However, it was here that a wonderful new Baroque church was built 300 years ago in 1715. The land was owned by the Phillips family. It is said that Elizabeth Phillips either donated or sold it. Whatever the story, the Phillips family name would be forever remembered. Although this does seem like an unusual way to name your church. This land to the north of the small town was on a ridge. Today it's quite difficult to see this hill, but if you look at contemporary views it is quite evident. At the beginning of the 18th century, Birmingham was in the Diocese of Litchfield. The Bishop of Litchfield, Bishop Hoff, was granted an Act of Parliament for the building of a new church, churchyard and rector's house. Bishop Hoff identified a small team of commissioners to ensure that the work was carried out. It was their job to locate the land and to have the church designed, funded and built. Amongst the commissioners were a number of Birmingham's well-known figures of the time. There was a local landowner, Lord Digby, Clearbury Holt from Aston Hall and Andrew Archer from Umberslade Hall in Tamworth in Ardham. Many of the commissioners donated money themselves and no doubt gave up much of their time to oversee the completion of the project. The brother of Andrew Archer was an architect and it was he who created the building we are so familiar with today. Thomas Archer had been to Oxford University and afterwards had spent four years travelling Europe on the Grand Tour. He would have seen the wonderful church designs of famous Baroque architects such as Borromini and Bernini in cities such as Rome, Venice and Florence. On returning to England, he began designing buildings and had a major project at Chatsworth House. His local connections and his skill made him an ideal candidate for the new church building in Birmingham. The scope of the design was very unusual for Birmingham and it tells us much about the aspirations of the town at the time. We are fortunate too to have the original design because it was included in an important collection of English Baroque designs. The accounts of the early church are still held at the Library of Birmingham today and they give a snapshot of the people that worked on St Philip's. Joseph Pedley the mason, Wesley who did the joinery and even a William Shakespeare who supplied the stone. The original stone came from quarries near Rowington in Warwickshire on land owned by the Archer family. The church bar the tower was complete in 1715 and consecrated on the 4th of October of that year. Daily church life commenced with the first baptism on the 7th of October 1715. The name of that baby, a son of Isaac Rolfe, appropriately was Philip. 
The completion of the tower in 1725 was possible with the intervention of another local landowner, Richard Gough, who lived at Edgebaston Hall and owned the Calthorpe estate. The board over the doorway into the church reads, His Most Excellent Majesty, King George, upon the kind application of Sir Richard Gough to the Right Honourable Sir Robert Walpole, gave £600 towards the finishing of this church in AD 1725. Richard Gough was duly acknowledged for his work with the inclusion of a boar's head in the weather vane that sits on top of the tower. A boar's head is part of his family's crest. So now let's move inside. Once complete, the church was an ode to elegant English Baroque and remains a rare example of this today. Key elements are the rusticated stonework, the careful treatment of concave and convex features, the use of scrolling and grotesques above the doorways and on the windows, and the dome with the neat balustrading little altered today. The interior in 1715 would have had three galleries. Today we have two. There would have been an additional one going across the West End where the shop area is today. This gallery would have held the choir and the organ would have originally been raised up and behind this gallery. Looking towards the front of the church, the large area with seating is known as the nave and the area with the altar is known as the chancel. There is a central aisle and two aisles flanking the seating, known as the North and South Aisles. The nave would have held large box pews that had seating facing both ways. The pews were like the ones you see at the back of the cathedral today. Parishioners would have paid for the use of the pews and the poor of the parish would have sat on low stools. Throughout the 18th century, there was a large triple-decker pulpit it was made from wood and had a level for the verger, one for the reader, and the top level was for the rector for preaching. The word, the readings and the sermon were the central part of worship at this time. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the church was very responsible for social care and education within the parish. And in 1724, St Philip's founded the Bluecoat School, which stood nearby on St Philip's Place. The pathway that takes you to Snow Hill today is in the same place as it was for the Bluecoat pupils. I imagine it ringing with the sound of 300 years of footsteps. The Bluecoat children acted as the first choir for the church and are part of the strong tradition of music that still exists today. In the 18th century, St Philip's and the surrounding area was a popular and fashionable place. Birmingham was rapidly developing and becoming known as an ambitious, cultural and free-thinking centre. Members of the influential Lunar Society worshipped here, William Small for example. Small was an influential teacher to Thomas Jefferson and he played an important role in the meetings of the Lunar Friends. He was well liked by all and had a gentle humour. There is a memorial to Small in the west end of the cathedral. He was buried here but we are not sure where. John Ash also worshipped here. He was the founder of Birmingham's General Hospital. 
John Baskerville, the printer and atheist, and William Withering, who discovered Digitalis from foxgloves, were both church wardens here, a very prestigious position in the 18th century. In 1791, the famous priestly riots were played out nearby, ignited by a dinner celebrating the French Revolution at a local hotel. Joseph Priestley, a Unitarian minister and scientist, was forced to flee the town. up towards the chancel, it is worth reflecting on the changes that the church experienced in the 19th century. The influence of the Oxford or Tractarian movement, led by John Henry Newman, saw a move away from the centrality of the word to a deeper understanding of the Eucharist, of symbol and of music and song within the church. Many churches went through physical alterations to accommodate this change in liturgy, and St Philip's was no exception. The forward-thinking rector, Grantham York, in the 1860s, started a series of improvements to the church. He orchestrated the removal of memorials from the exterior of the building and the replacement of the stonework. The original Warwickshire stone was very soft and it was replaced with a Hollington white stone. The interior was also altered and the design and execution was led by a well-regarded Birmingham architect, J.A. Chatwin. Chatwin had great respect for the work of Archer 150 years before him, and he succeeded in carrying out a remarkably sensitive improvement. This included a 12-foot extension of the chancel to incorporate six stone Corinthian pillars, a choir stall, the relocation of the organ to its current position and the creation of three large window spaces for stained glass windows. Chatwin also introduced a coffered ceiling and decorative cornicing. Today it can be said that Chatwin's design is a seamless enhancement. Much of the cost of these works was met by Emma Chadwick Villiers-Wilkes, a local benefactress. She had wanted a memorial to her brother but had somehow been persuaded to assist with the new works. Emma was a single woman living in nearby Old Square. Emma and her sister were very involved in church life, and we certainly owe a lot to her today. The artist chosen to design the windows was Edward Byrne-Jones. Byrne-Jones was born in Birmingham in 1833. His intention had been to go into the ministry However, a friendship with William Morris, a leader of the arts and crafts movement, who he met at Oxford, changed his career path, and he decided to devote himself to art. He was a follower of the pre-Raphaelite movement and one of its greatest exponents. As such, his work is marked by a naturalism, abundant detail, intense colours and complex compositions. In addition, his deep understanding of the Bible made him an expert in telling the Christian stories through his artwork. The first window to be completed was the Ascension window in 1885. It tells the story of Christ's ascension into heaven 40 days after his resurrection. 
he is watched in amazement by his apostles. The intense reds are truly stunning and look different every time you look at them. The inclusion of the William Morris designs reminds us of his important partner in whose factory the windows were created. Burne-Jones at this time was living in London. He came back to Birmingham for the opening of the Museum and Art Gallery in 1885 and at the same time popped into St Philip's to look at the Ascension window. He was amazed and inspired by what he saw and proposed to create two further windows for the new chancel. Completed in 1887, the Nativity is a charming scene. The boy child is shown born in a cave, not in the traditional stable, and sheep are depicted rather than cattle. It is said that on seeing the original design, Villiers Wilkes said, this is a church, not a cattle shed. Emma had a strong influence over the crucifixion window too. She wanted no blood to be shown. This window tells the story brilliantly. The impassivity of the Roman soldier, the vulgarity of the praying crowds beyond, the grief of his mother and Mary Magdalene, and the robust figure of Christ. These windows are an inspiration to Christians, artists, and storytellers alike. They are the undoubted jewels in the crown of Birmingham Cathedral, seen by thousands of local people and international visitors each year. It is so special to see Burne-Jones' work, not in a gallery, but in their original context, and we are very proud of them. Perhaps Burne-Jones' most triumphant work in stained glass is the last judgment window, at its most awe-inspiring when the colours come to life in the setting sun. Burne-Jones never saw this magnificent sight before his death. This beautiful and sacred space was soon to be chosen as the cathedral of the new Diocese of Birmingham in 1905. Here is the bishop's cathedral or seat where the first bishop, Charles Gore, sat. From the outset, he was committed to tackling social problems within his new diocese. Rather than investing in a new building, he insisted that St Philip's should become the new cathedral. Bishop Gore is commemorated in the imposing bronze statue outside the main entrance. Among the other bishops commemorated in the cathedral is Bishop Wilson, who had been a Japanese prisoner of war. He is remembered fondly in Birmingham. There are many other fine memorials within the cathedral, including this one to the Royal Warwickshire Regiment from the First World War. Designed by Arthur Stansfield Dixon, an arts and crafts architect from Birmingham, it is a multi-sided plaque flanked by four diamonds. The marble is green and white and decorated with a delicate painted floral design. As we walk around the cathedral, located underneath the ascension window, we'll see a stunning cross by John Donald with a large piece of lit quartz at its centre. The magnificent crucifix created by Peter Eugene Ball in the North Isle showing the figure of Christ on railway sleepers. A beautiful font designed by Birmingham sculptor John Paul 
and a series of portraits of sextons and church wardens on the North Gallery. Surprisingly, there are bits of graffiti in various locations, some dating back to 1760. We hope that you will enjoy this beautiful, sacred space at the heart of the town that became a city. Now let the Dean of Birmingham, the very Reverend Catherine Ogle, have the final word. Thank you for taking this tour. It's been great to share our cathedral with you. This heritage journey is part of a large programme of events and activities, services, pilgrimages and art that's taking place this year. And if you'd like to find out more, please check our website at birminghamcathedral.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.